Uh, this is our, uh, our last uh, Sunday school on apologetics. We're doing some question and answer time. Um, I have some questions that have been submitted. If a question comes to you and you'd like to uh, uh, verbally give one, that would be just fine as well. And uh, we will do that next week. We are beginning our brand new Sunday School uh, Hour on a biblical worldview of economics. Um, this is a, uh, we live at a time where this is kind of where the, the battleground has been laid uh, as far as how uh, even politically economics have been used as a weapon. Um, and so, how are we Christians supposed to understand it, interact with it, and have a better understanding of it? Well, uh, Tim is going to come and uh, give us uh, several weeks on that. And uh, he's, it's, what's nice is that Tim is not just an armchair uh, thinker when it comes to economics. He talks about this all the time. He's a professor over at Wofford. I always want to say Wofford, and I don't know why. Wofford College. Have you ever been to Wofford? Uh, it's a pretty nice campus. I mean, fancy. So, you know Tim knows what he's talking about. So, make sure you come next week and get ready for that. It's, uh, it's also a good way to know how to talk to people as... Uh, as more and more things happen in our country, uh, it's good to have a nice, solid understanding of this. So I, I'm looking forward to it, and uh, I look forward to seeing you there. And uh, that's next week. Okay. So this, uh, so today, uh, we are going to finish up apologetics. I wanted to give one last little uh, statement about apologetics from 1 Peter 3, and then we will get into the questions. Does that sound good? All right. Well, let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll get going. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we uh, come before you thinking about um, these things that could easily turn into ethereal ideas and uh, complex um, theories we pray, Lord, that uh, as we think on how we are to defend the faith, how we are to talk about our faith to others, and even how we talk about it to ourselves, I pray, Lord, that you would make this uh, practical to us, something that would um, settle in on our heart, that we might view the world differently through your word. And we ask these things in your son's name. Amen. Okay, so I was thinking to myself, what's, if I'm going to give you a last little 10-minute bit uh, as to what to remember about apologetics, um, I thought about 1 Peter 3.15, which is the, uh, it's the text that all uh, people talk about when they talk about apologetics, and it's a good text. And usually they go right to 1 Peter 3.15, which reads, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, um, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you, um, 
to give an account for the hope that is in you. And they go straight to that, and it's true. All of that is true. You need to be able to give an account. You need to give a defense. It's where we get the word apologetic, apologia, all that. And that's true. But what a lot of people forget is where this is located. Uh, do you realize this chapter is about practical godly living? Um, it's not about complex, uh, intricate uh, ideas of logic and, and apologetical uh, ethereal work. Um, the very first verse in 1 Peter 3 is talking about wives submitting to their own husbands. Well, what does that have to do with the great intellectual work of apologetics? Um, it talks about um, women adorning themselves modestly. Um, it talks about uh, husbands in the same way, love your, uh, live with your wives in, all understand, in an understanding way as with someone weaker, since she is a woman. Well, that's pretty offensive. <laughs> um, and so we're talking about this godly living, the differences between men and women, their roles, the work that a man has as head of his home, and the work as a woman ha that a woman takes on as uh, taking on the humble work of submitting to her husband. And then verse 8 is to sum up everything. Uh, you know this because the first words are to sum up. <laughs> um, all you, um, and he, he, he talks about being sympathetic, being kind, being humble in spirit, uh, not returning evil for evil. And he goes into this... Um, into this proof text of the Old Testament about how we're supposed to keep our tongue from evil and our lips from speaking deceit. And it's really about how to love each other. And this is his summing up, to love each other, to be kind to each other. Don't bite each other, don't bite each other in the back. Um, and then it talks about who is there to harm you um, if you prove zealous for what is good. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled when the world comes against you. Don't be troubled. You should set Christ aside in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you, to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. So this isn't, this isn't necessarily talking about this big-headedness of the kind of apologetics we've come to know because of people that have kind of steered apologetics into a different direction. Okay? Um... So apologetics, biblically, really isn't about uh, studying deeply uh, the ins and outs of, of logical arguments. It's not the work of uh, really understanding the ins and outs of uh, digging in deserts and finding trinkets in the desert to make sure the Bible's right. Um, 
it's not about all these things that it's kind of turned into. Um, those things are okay in and of themselves, but apologetics doesn't mean that you need to now be an expert in the ins and outs of bi biological sciences to make sure that fits with scripture, or archeological work to make sure you're doing your research in archeology span to ensure that you are defending your Bible. Um, as, what's his name? As Warfield put it, the Bible doesn't need to be defended. The Bible is like a lion. You open the cage and let it do its work. Um, so I want you to remember that apologetics, when it really comes down to it, is having an answer, making sure that you have done your work, not in archaeology, not in philosophy, not in science. Those things are fine. But biblically it's saying, do your work in Scripture. That Scripture, you know how to, how to understand Scripture enough that Scripture gives an account. For the hope that's not within archaeology, but the hope that's within you. What is the hope that, that is within you? It's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the hope that is within you. And therefore, because this is the kind of work you're doing, you're not doing it in an arrogant, jerky way. You're doing it because you love the person you're talking to. Uh, loving the person you're talking to is much different than trying to be right. right. Sometimes I think we think of apologetics as an avenue to make ourselves feel smarter, to win some arguments so we can feel better about uh, believing what we believe. And what we do is we end up putting our hope and trust in things that when smarter people, people come along, uh, they take that away, right? The hope that is in you is the work of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit himself is that down payment. He is the hope that is within you, literally. And so that is your confidence, Scripture is your confidence because Scripture is the thing that accounts for any kind of reality that, that is out here that we see with our eyes and experience with our observations. And so with that being said, apologetics really is part of the daily work that is just like the daily work of a man trying to be head of his home like a woman trying to have the strength and courage to submit biblically, to have the, um, the daily work it takes to love each other, and don't let the world intimidate you because you have a hope inside you that your scripture accounts for, and you can be sure of that. And when you talk to the world, uh, do it with reverence and kindness because you should be loving them. That's what it's saying. It's all part of this daily work. It's not this new thing over here that we need the experts. It's fine to have experts. What I've found is um, people have so little understanding of what apologetics is, they mix it up with, a, with worldview. Apologetics is about having a method to defend the faith. Scripture should be at the center of that method. Instead, what people have done is they've gone into these deep understandings of archaeology 
Archaeology doesn't defend your Bible. But you can have a biblical worldview of archaeology, absolutely. You can go through all of Josh McDowell's stuff and say, praise the Lord, isn't that neat? That's a biblical worldview of archaeology. Is it, a, is it apologetical defense of your Bible? No, your Bible doesn't need defense. Your Bible has the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, archaeology is made possible because of your Bible. Therefore, archaeology doesn't prove your Bible. Science. People find a lot of stuff in science that meets up with Scripture, and that's great. That's a nice biblical worldview of science. But science doesn't defend your Bible. It's not an apologetic. Your Bible is the thing that confirms the rest of the world, because it is the authority. If you remember nothing else, just remember that. That would be good. So, that's what I would like to leave you with when it comes to apologetics. This isn't necessarily the work of experts, although there's a lot of experts out there. This is your daily work. That comes down with the daily work of being sweet to the person that is next to you in your pew today. That's the way Peter is talking about apologetics. And so this is, uh, if I can put it this way, this is the common work. Uh, there's experts out there. They're great if they're right. Uh, a lot of them are wrong. <laughs> we were talking about one on the way here. That's really messed things up. Okay, so, uh, so I want to get to some of your questions. Okay? Some of you have written some out, so I'll start with the written out ones, and then we'll move to questions that you might have that you want to uh, add verbally, or if you just want to hand a note up, I can read it. I'm not a good reader, but uh, I'll do what I can. Okay, uh, I'll start with this one. Um, what do I say to my friends when they ask me about the rapture or if all babies go to heaven? That's a great question. Uh, because uh, you live in the South. <laughs> and so uh, there's a lot of different views of what we call eschatology. Um, there's uh, premillennial views. There's post-millennial views, amillennial views. Uh, within the premillennial view, there's a reformed way of looking at premillennialism. We call it historical premillennialism. It's actually one of the first uh, organized ways that the church actually thought about uh, the end times. Uh, postmillennialism came about later, uh, where they had this idea that um, there would be an ushering in of Christ's return through a conversion, a large conversion of the world. Um, and then there's a millennial view that kind of uh, says, well, uh, the millennium has already been established by Christ's resurrection, and um, it's an already and not yet situation. Um, within the premillennial view, there is a very a newer way of looking at it that came about uh, more in the late uh, 1800s, early 1900s, with this idea of a rapture. Um, and I will put it this way. Um, the worst thing you could do is argue over the details and say, well, 
It can't be a rapture the way, you're the way you, know, you and Kurt Cameron think of it. It's got to be something different. And so you start arguing over these details. Um, and I'll put it this way. You know, I, I'm amillennial, uh, I guess. Uh, and uh, if it turned out there was a rapture, I'd be like, okay. I'm just glad Jesus is coming back. <laughs> right? Uh, you know, my poor mother... <laughs> You know, when I first became Reformed, she was very concerned. She said, well, you know, if you're amillennial, you, do you even believe Jesus is coming back? <laughs> and, you know, there's this idea that, you know, there, eschatology is one of the most difficult things to understand because it is presented in Scripture in a, in a kind of language that's very difficult to understand. Though I think those that are in their absolute surety that they have come to the absolute understanding that this is how it's going to be, um, don't understand scripture. I think there's, there's good reason to believe certain things about eschatology. Uh, first of all, everyone's got to believe Jesus is coming back. If you don't believe that, then uh, you're wrong. <laughs> um, how he comes back is what everyone's quibbling about. And I think the big danger um, with this is being overly, if I can put it this way, dramatic about how you think it's going to happen. I think the best thing to do for our brothers and sisters that, are, that hold to the uh, rapture coming, find out what they really believe about it. Uh, see what parts make sense. Um, be happy that they believe Jesus is coming back, even if he's coming back a half and then a full time after that. Because, you know what I'm talking about, come down the clouds and then he goes back and then he comes back. Okay, my point is, is that it's, if this becomes the thing, uh, if, if eschatology becomes the thing that then qualifies people in your mind, um, you have made an idol out of something. Make an, if I can put it this way, I don't know if this is a respectful way to talk, make an idol out of Christ. <laughs> Worship Christ. Um, don't fall in love with your doctrine to the point where you uh, begin to shun your brothers and sisters over something that you can talk about it when you get to heaven. Say, hey, you were right, I was wrong. Yes. Yeah. Yes. A bunch of, yeah. Okay, so the question was, what happens when you're the one that's shunned because of it? And, uh, and, I, can, and I can understand that, you know, as someone that works at a place that uh, really enjoys that doctrine. Um, I can put it this way. Um, you cannot uh, change someone's mind by trying, by trying to um, weaken their belief on that. What you can do is love them. And I know, this is, I know this is difficult, especially when you're talking about younger people who are very confident over things they have done no work to understand. 
uh, because this is, the, this is what young people do. And they're not going to do any more work uh, through any other pleading. Yeah, that's true. Yes, and, and, then, and then, then, then just quietly walk away and let them be worked on by the Holy Spirit going, what in the world did he just say? Yeah. And that's, yeah, adults might think that way. Uh, teenagers don't. Teenagers think, ooh, I beat them. I was right. Uh, because most teenagers don't see Christianity as how I love my neighbor. They see Christianity as how I can beat my neighbor over the head or... Uh, be right, or be interesting, or be cool. Um, it takes a while for them to get to the point where Christianity is a lifestyle that involves Christ, uh, not themselves. And so, you're right. I think that works with adults. With teenagers, um, I think the best thing you can do is say, I am glad that you believe Christ is coming back. I believe Christ is coming back, too. We might differ on how this is going to happen but we agree Christ is coming back. And, um, and you really have to leave it there because at that point, if someone's shunning you over the rapture, then their understanding of Scripture is pretty low. And uh, it's going to turn into a fight because they're not, they're not acting as Christians. They may not even be a Christian. I mean, the way teenagers act these days, I, I just I don't take that for granted anymore. I just, when... When Christ becomes a beating rod against your brother, it, I just really wonder. So, um, I would say this is one of those times where you happily say, I am so glad we agree that Christ is coming back, but we disagree on this other part. Um, sorry. And you have to keep loving them, even though it is not easy to do that, uh, because they are not loving you. And this is, the, this is the difficult part about Christianity, is that to copy Christ, uh, we have to copy his love. When did Christ love us? Was it after we were given the power through the Holy Spirit to love him back? No. While we were yet sinners. Yeah. And so you have to love them as they don't love you. Um, and this is something even for our young men in the church to think about when it comes to eschatology. Uh, this is something young men get all excited about, and it's fine if it's a fun thing. But if you start really believing you have cornered the market on it, eschatology, uh, you haven't read enough. <laughs> um, and I will say this, uh, you know, and maybe you can be the first uh, to do this, the post-mill people are always, in my experience, a little, uh, how do I put it, prickly. A little prickly. If you, could, if you want to be post-mill, be the first one that's sweet. That would be nice. <laughs> and, you know, however it works out, you know, uh, if the ah-mill people are right, then cool. The post-mill people are right. I'm like, oh, that's surprising, but great. Uh, 
If the pre-mill people are right, then fantastic. Let's do it. The point ought to be that, praise God, we're all agreeing that Revelation, even though it was written in a way that is difficult to understand, God gave us the grace to know Christ is coming back. Praise God. Um, Let's celebrate that together, even if we might disagree on the details. Um, Do all babies go to heaven? Uh, That's a difficult question because um, what's interesting is that everyone seems, uh, this is something I was thinking about the other day, about how, you know, God has made scripture in a way that everyone is kind of leaning in the same direction. We just have different ways that we've worked it out. And, you know, we have convictions about how we worked it out, okay? So, you know, people say, why do you Presbyterians baptize babies? You know, why would they do that? That doesn't make any sense. They, they, they admit that it doesn't save the baby. You know, the water on the head doesn't save the baby. So why are they doing this? What they should do is dedicate the baby. <laughs> and what's happening? Everyone's kind of agreeing something needs to be done with the children. Right? Something needs to be done. Right? <laughs> Where, you know, whether you're Baptist or Presbyterian, everyone's thinking, okay, Scripture seems to point at our children and that something needs to be done. And so, you know, do we dedicate them? Do we baptize them? These are different things, but everyone's agreeing something needs to be done, okay? The same thing with babies and, and heaven. So, um, so our brothers... Uh, from other denominations might believe there's this thing called an age of accountability where everyone goes to heaven until they hit this age where their rational thought is strong enough to make a decision whether they're going to accept or not accept Christ. When they get to that, whatever that moment is, then they're culpable and they can go to hell. Up until then, they're not culpable, so they won't go to hell. Does that make sense? Now, there's a difficulty with this because there's, it, there's no evidence in the Bible about that at all. But it makes people feel a lot better <laughs> because they've solved the problem of whether babies go to, to hell or not. Does that make sense? Um, and it's, it's also, you know, I understand why people would like to believe that uh, because, you know, it gives a, a way that, you know, all the kids are going to go to heaven until they reach this logical conclusion. Uh, the problem with that is now that means that uh, that salvation really is dependent upon your rational abilities. And it's not. Uh, salvation is not dependent on the will of man. It's dependent on the will of God. That's right. Uh, Romans 9. So what does this mean if we're going to hold close to, what that, to that statement? If we're not going to try and make something up, that sounds okay, but really has no biblical bearing. What do we do? We put it in the Lord's hands that it really is up to him that before the foundation of the world, he has chosen. Does that mean he's chosen all the babies that were aborted and all the babies that have died? Maybe, I don't know. Uh, we can ask. Uh, in heaven and say, how'd that work out? Uh, Because 
um, God is not just, is not righteous um, based on our logical understanding. Do you understand? God is just and righteous as the one who is just and righteous. There is no other definition that we can use that doesn't point to God. There isn't a standard of just and righteousness that we have accumulated through our logical thinking skills and our experience that now God has to reach. Does that make sense? God is just and righteous. And however he worked that out, he worked it out. David himself said, I will see my son, right? When his son died, when God took his son. He was in a covenant home, so he was depending on that, and that's great. How does it all work out? I'm not sure. I have no idea. Um, you can make something up with uh, age of accountability. Uh, I don't see anywhere in scripture about that, but, um, but I know that God is in control of salvation. God is in control of salvation. Not, not Bloom's taxonomy, not my logical cognition. God is. And how he worked that out is up to him. Yes. Oh yeah. Well, I mean that, and I think we find our comfort in in David's statement. He was a, you know, this baby was part of a covenant family, and so there's there's comfort there, right? Mm-hmm. So, but the salvation itself, you understand what I'm saying. You have to have been granted salvation to go to heaven, okay? And so how God works that out really is up to God. And I don't know. Does that make sense? There's, there's hints in Scripture that help us understand things about God's mercy and God's grace and all that sort of thing. But to, to try and calm our nerves about it by placing in this idea that cognition saves you, no. Um, I wouldn't go there. I would say this is one of those part, those one of those times that you have to really rely on, on and trust the Lord that He did it the best way because He did. I just don't know what that was going to look like when I get to heaven, and that's okay. Do you understand that the the Christian uh, our Christian faith is not necessarily based on human observation, human logic systems. And that sort of thing. And when something in scripture doesn't match my human logic system, we have to be worried. <laughs> um, in fact, if anything, if you find something in scripture that matches human logic systems to the exact degree, that's when you really ought to probably be worried. <laughs> um, so, that's my answer for that. I don't know if it's... Some of these answers are not going to be comforting. and I don't know if they're meant to be. Uh, but... We want to stick to scripture and not make something up. I think that's more comforting, isn't it? Yes.
That's right. And I think that's where Proverbs, uh, uh, for those that didn't hear, he's talking about, you know, what about the, what kind of comfort does a parent have? You know, can they be so comfortable that they just don't even bother raising their children uh, because they're going to go to heaven anyway? Or don't bother raising their children, they're going to go to hell anyway. Um, what kind of responsibility do they have? And Proverbs is clear, you know. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. What is that talking about? Talking about there is responsibility on the parent. Is it ultimate responsibility? No. God has the ultimate responsibility on who, who is saved and who isn't. But uh, there is responsibility. We are responsible. There's a responsibility to training up the child. Um, I think most of the question comes from what about aborted children and things like that. And, uh, and I think that uh, we will see what God has done. The, the, the thing that I think we don't quite get, and I think this is where the rubber meets the road, is we kind of don't believe David that he was conceived in sin. Um, I think we're okay with David saying that we were conceived in sin um, as long as they grow up and get saved, or as long as they grow up and show how terrible they are. But do we believe David uh, when he says he was conceived in sin? Does that make sense? That the problem with the age of accountability thing is it kind of winks at the idea that we really are innocent until our rational uh, ideas start coming into our brains. And we're not. Right? We're conceived in sin. Yes, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, people that have children know this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's right. And these are these are tough things. I mean, and and I'm not talking from someone with no experience in this. You know, my uh, after we had Daniel, we tried for a long time to have children, and we had a lot of 
a lot of miscarriages. I mean a lot of miscarriages. And so we are not speaking, I'm not speaking as someone who just hasn't had to wrestle with this, right? Where are those children? Well, we're a covenant family. We are, um, we have the hope in Christ uh, that they are predestined children. But something has to, they don't go to heaven merely because they're babies. Christ has to do something. They have to be predestined. You understand this. Babies aren't born without sin. Babies aren't even conceived without sin. This is the curse of Adam. We have to hold on to this, because if you don't hold on to this, then you have to deny Romans 5. You have to deny Genesis 3. You have to deny all of the book of Romans, really. And you have to try and create some uh, heretical ideas to make all this work. So when a child is formed in the womb, they are formed there as something guilty that needs Christ. So Christ has to do something on their behalf. And I think, I think he does. I don't know how that works or how that um, happens with every single baby. I don't know. But something has to happen because they're not born uh, as Adams, you know, in Genesis 1. They are, they're born in sin. And that means something. Uh, we got a few more, but let me, uh, oh my. Okay, I'm sorry. Okay, so let me, yeah. Uh, let me see here. Uh, da, da, da. Let me, uh, okay. Uh, <laughs> okay, thinking of uh, talking to unbelievers, um, when unbelievers might have poor logic, um, and they're dealing in sin, how is it that we lead them to the Lord um, when, uh, oh, let me try and understand this question. Okay, how does one, when waiting in the quagmire of poor logic and sin, what are some pointers? Okay, some pointers in, in okay. So when we talk about witnessing to others, um, one of the things that we can do as a pointer to uh, help the, the type of method that we have been talking about all these weeks is something that I think isn't done very often. One good pointer is to actually listen to their argument. Um, really listen. Um, and it's going to be tough because some of their argument is filled with contradictions. Some of it is assumptions that aren't even true about Christianity, but you got to listen to the whole thing and listen not just nodding so that you're being a good Christian and showing your love, but listening to those points so you can bring them up and show them their own words. Okay, you said this about Christianity, so you're assuming this and this, and that, you know, that's a problem. Or you're thinking this way because of you said this and this. When they start hearing their own words being given back to them, as an offering for them to try and understand the consistency of it. It helps them really un know, number one, okay, they were really listening to me, and number two, I wasn't as uh, clear-minded on this as I thought, and they might have a point, okay? And that's helpful, okay? That's a good pointer to have 
Because I think we forget that because the minute we hear something we don't like, that's all we're thinking about, and they're doing this, and we're still thinking about the other stuff. Right? Yes. Answering a fool according to his folly, as Proverbs talked about, really involves a lot of listening skills. Okay? Because you don't want to take their ground, but you want to show how their ground, where their ground will lead them. Does that make sense? Um, another question was, in trying to lead someone to the Lord, how do we balance confronting them with their errors and sins through logical reasoning, which uh, risks driving them away, right? Uh, and how do you balance that with feeding them uh, to, oh, to help them with what they're supposed to trust in, like scripture. So isn't it true that when you show someone their own inconsistencies, that it's going to tick them off a little bit? <laughs> How do you keep from driving them away? And I think it comes down to this, uh, the last part of 1 Peter three fifteen, that apologetics is not designed to show you're right, and they're wrong. Apologetics is a demonstration of your love. That's the context of this whole chapter. Uh, husbands showing love to their wives, wives showing love to their husbands, the congregation showing love for each other, and you even need to show love for the outside world who are going to try to intimidate you. And so your response of driving them to their own contradiction is a drive out of love. There's a way of doing that to demonstrate you're right and they're wrong, and yes, it will drive them away. Truth will even drive them away, but your job is not to make a sale. Your job is to obey scripture. Does that make sense? Um, there's a way to close the deal, and I think that's where a lot of books get a lot of traction because we're trying to close the deal. Like, okay, are you ready to make the prayer? Are you ready? Uh, you know, I uh, got one, one down into the church he goes. Uh, but rather, you're trying to obey Scripture and showing love to this person, listening to what they say, in love showing them where this leads, so that in love they can be your brother one day. Wouldn't that be great? Or sister. Um, we are obsessed with being right. <laughs> um, I think it's part of our culture. Um, I think it makes us feel better about being Christians. Um, because we take, um, we take pride in our being right and comfort in it, instead of taking comfort in the comforter. Okay, uh, let me get to another one really quickly. Um, what books or authors do we recommend for apologetics? Um, there's one uh, by Scott Oliphant called uh, Covenantal Apologetics. It's pretty good. It has, he, um, he's probably not the best communicator in the world, but on this one he really tried to reach a good, um, a good level of uh, grammar that would help people understand where he's coming from. I think it's pretty good. He has some examples in there that are helpful. Uh, frame, I think, is really helpful. Um, for those that are more um, intellectually driven, um, some of the questions that kind of bother you, he gets into those. 
Uh, I think it's called Apologetics for the Glory of God is a, is, is a decent one. So I would stick in those realms. Uh, Bonson has one called uh, Pushing the Antithesis. It's pretty good for those of you that want um, more advanced apologetics. Uh, um, I would read those, and then if, if you're like, hey, I think I understand these, then go to Van Til's uh, Defense of the Faith and see, you know, go through a chapter, ponder on it for a year or two, and then go to the next chapter. Okay. Um, and beginning logic books, um, there's lots of lo logic books out there. One that's a nice one for lay, for lay, uh, lay people, not, uh, and I say that as in, you don't want to take a course on the college level in logic where it gets into formal logic and all that foolishness. You just want one that kind of just helps you think a little bit. There's one that Anthony Flew wrote called uh, Thinking Straight. And it's really helpful. It's really thin. Anthony Flew was a philosopher uh, that very respected out there until he started to believe there might be a god out there, and then he was immediately, everyone hated him. Uh, but uh, he wrote this little book on th called Thinking Straight. Very good book about uh, just logical ideas that might help you uh, think straight. <laughs> good. Probably that book today wouldn't be uh, accepted because of all the gender issues we have nowadays, but uh, it has nothing to do with that. All right. Um, uh, how are we doing on time? Okay, not good. Okay, well, last thing I will say uh, is um, if I answered one of these questions in a way that uh, brought great distress to you, please see me afterwards and we can talk about it. Uh, the key that I, the thing I want us to do, even if I didn't answer the questions well or with good communication skills, I want you to think about this. There are answers to questions that will bring you comfort that may have no place in Scripture, but it might have a place in your, in your like, common sense. I want you to start thinking about finding your comfort in Scripture. Do not find comfort in your common sense. As someone that has taught logic for many years, I can tell you your common sense probably isn't great. None of us are, because we're go our common sense typically comes from poor reasoning skills that we think are good based on observations we think are accurate that usually aren't. Find comfort in Scripture even when scripture gives you an answer that might not be what you were hoping for or maybe confusing or mysterious based on what you've come to think about, what's just or true or right, please find your comfort in scripture. Uh, the Holy Spirit will help you with this and it will give you the power that you need when you start doubting, not just when your friends do. All right, let's pray. We gotta get going. I'm sorry I went over. Uh, if you have more questions, come see me. I'm happy to talk to you about it uh, between services. All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that even though uh, maybe uh, we can't communicate things as well as we want to, Lord, your scripture is sufficient uh, because your Holy Spirit uh, searches the mind of God and then reveals them to us because we do have the mind of Christ. Lord, we pray for 
uh, wisdom and understanding as we try to wrestle with, with questions that are good questions. I pray that we find our comfort in the word you have given us, not in our interpretation of the world, but in yours. Lord, we ask these things in your son's name. Amen.